all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 166 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the Andromeda episode of the SLS cast, because it turns out that there just happens to be a sixth magnitude star in the constellation Andromeda, and it happens to be the name of HD-166. Yes, and with that little bit of astronomical knowledge, I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us all the way from the new bunker in California for the second week in a row would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! And hey, Matt, we're still friends. Yes, we are, because people let me tell you about my best friend, even though we may disagree and get violent and vehement in the end. And people let Tell you we're having so much fun until we disagree on every movie, like Room <laughs> and Rubber and Rubber and and, uh, and No Escape and Hobo with the Shotgun. Mm-hmm. And I, oh, um, and uh, Melancholia, Melancholia. Yeah, so, not that many. See, there's but... a handful. This is not the first time that it's happened, people. And just because we get mad doesn't mean we're not friends. You've never argued with a friend of yours. Come on, people. Yeah, I mean, every time I see Matt, I, I trust him with giving me a colonic because I wouldn't trust my bowels in anybody else's hands than Matthew's. That's right. And that's why I always make sure to use whole milk, Borden's whole milk. Nothing but the best for a milk-fed colonic. <laughs> I, I like how you say Borden's. You say it very professionally. Borden's. Well, there's a reason. There's a reason. Not because we're being sponsored by... Um, uh, Nobody? At the sound of the tone, turn the page. Um, no, uh, I, I came across somebody by accident and this weekend while I was doing my wonderful... A day job, as it were, and I have a I have a spiel that I do at the door when I when I am doing my deliveries and stuff. And there's this random lady that I have to thank, and she lives actually. It's interesting. She lives like four streets over from me, and I don't know her name, but I just remember that her street is about four streets away, and. I was supposed to take a delivery to her house on it was Super Bowl Sunday, you know, it's a big big delivery day. And she had she called the store and was like, "Oh, I wanted my order at 5 o'clock, not 4 o'clock, so I need to change my order." And because of that, it I was going to deliver that pizza to her, and so since she had pulled herself out of the rotation, I ended up getting stuck on this single going way far north. And I'm like, oh my God, it's just one delivery. And there's so many drivers. I'm never going to get back into the rotation again. And so I was a little disappointed, but they tipped well. So I was like, ah, well, okay. At least, you know, it's not a total loss. I get up to, I get up there and, you know, knock on the door. And this wonderful guy, I shall only refer to, uh, as M 
because, you know, I didn't say that I was going to talk about this on the show. But, uh, so, so I get to the, I, uh, I get to the door, knock on the door. M answers the door. And I do my delivery spiel. And at the end of which, he is like, holy crap, that is amazing. Who do you work for? And I'm like, um, I work for Papa John's. It says it right here on the shirt. And he's like, no, no, you like, do you do voiceover work or anything like that at all? And I'm like, well, I have a movie podcast. It's not safe for work, but I mean, I have a movie podcast. I've done a little bit of voiceover for some other friends who have podcasts and stuff like that, but you know, nothing major. And he's like, holy crap. I here, here's my name and here's my number and text me your stuff and we're going to get hooked up. And I was like, holy shit. Well, thank you, random lady, for not wanting your pizza at four o'clock because now I got to meet M and maybe something amazing will happen. Maybe not, but still, it felt really cool to get complimented and uh, told, you know, you have uh, a really good voice and blah, 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 blah. So that was a nice little boost to the confidence that uh, that day. As he gives you a two dollar tip and sends you your way. No, no, it was really good. And, <laughs> and and even though even though it had already been web tipped and I and I knew it was a good tip, he doubled that good tip on the spot. So I was like, "Well, shit, man. Okay, thank you." So yeah, so no, fa- fantastic in terms of good to the driver and everything. And um, so I had that fun experience. So your Super Bowl Sunday, as whenever I mm-hmm. work there as well. Yes. You know, we would spend Super Bowl, Super Bowl Sundays driving around and delivering pizzas and all that stuff. And you, I mean, you would always get tipped pretty well uh, since everybody and their mother is ordering goddamn pizzas in Spring, Texas on Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> True. True. The problem is, is that because everybody and their brother is ordering pizza, they bring in, you know, 268 drivers. And so um, I had actually opened that day and... It had been pretty slow um, going in to the Super Bowl. I ended up getting off at like 6, I want to say like 6.30 or so, 6.40. So, I mean, I still made it back. There, by the time I got home and was in the and was sitting down in my neighbor's house uh, watching the game with my beer, it was, there was still seven and a half minutes left in the second quarter. So, I got to watch the bulk of the game. That was nice. There's this German restaurant by where we moved from in West Hollywood. I love going there. And so the significant other was out of town, so I had the entire day free. So I got together with a guy from work, and he actually met me over there at this German restaurant called Versthaus. It's a great place. But they had a special last year where you go and from like 12 to 3 o'clock... Right before the game starts, you pay 25 27 bucks, and you get all-you-can-eat sausages and eggs and potatoes, as well as all-you-can-drink German beer. And all wow. their food is it's German food, you know, so the sausages, it's not just like a, a regular link sausage. No, this is like... No, this is like good bratwurst. I mean, yeah, sure. brat, elk, boar, buffalo, you know, anything like that. So it was you know, all you can eat for three hours. And the German beer, they have a plethora of German beer, Polliner, and you're a really good German Hefeweizen, a really dark Hefeweizen. It's really, it's delicious. We went and did that, and I was at 
that German restaurant from 12 p.m. And I ended up staying there till 7 o'clock, I think. 7, 7.30 or so. So I'm there all day. It was a blast. Can't say I actually paid attention to the game. I can only remember two things that happened in the game. And it wasn't relevant at all to the actual playing of the game. Well, I, okay, I also had a pretty interesting experience just a couple hours ago in my American Lit class where we were learning the wonders of uh, colonial literature in terms of first-person narratives and also um, captivity narratives. So we're learning a little sure. bit about yeah. John Smith. Sure, so we're learning about John Smith and everything. And, of course, uh, his version of the whole Pocahontas thing. But this also coincides with my colonial history class that I am taking, where we're where we're learning all that stuff too. So it's kind of cool to kind of mesh these two together. And so we we were learning about all these different kinds of terms and how they even can relate to today, with you know certain um, uh, with basically even how cultures can still clash today and, and all that kind of stuff. And we were discussing whether or not we had made strides in the United States in terms of uh, racism and whatnot. And I, and I had said, well, sure, I think we really have because we talked about the movie Selma. And, uh, and I was like, hey, there's a segue to talk about something that I know a little bit about. <laughs> and so we were talking about Selma a little bit. And I'm like, so we've got this movie and it takes place about 55 years ago. And you see all the horrors and everything that were transpired then. And I don't, I don't remember today. seeing all the horrors. I don't. I don't remember there being a large horror presence. And horrors. Oh, my bad. Gotcha. My bad. If my pronunciation fell short. <laughs> yes, my horrors. Anyways, and then we look at today, and while we certainly, are, you know, have a ways to go, and this is what I said, we certainly have a ways to go. But man, we really have made great strides because the professor was like, man, I watch these kinds of movies and I just feel horrible. And I'm like, no, don't feel horrible. We know where we come from. We know we have work to do and we're doing that work. And, um, and so the professor was like, oh my gosh, well, you know, I, I don't know. And then another, uh, student chimes in who is also above the age of 30 and she's a, she's a professional and she talks about how she takes a group of, underprivileged kids that are generally black to Disney world every year uh, as part of whatever program that she's doing. And so, and she hears people make disparaging comments um, in whatever airport, doesn't matter if it's in LA, doesn't matter if it's in Houston, doesn't matter if it's in Orlando, and, you know, whenever she's taking these kids to wherever, to whatever Disney location they're going to, you know, there are people who make some disparaging comments in the airports or whatever. And she's literally comparing that to what happened in you know for the civil rights movement and everything and i'm like doesn't that kind of prove the point that we treat something that's as simple as verbal uh insults and everything with with the same degree of uh, of insult and and taking ex, ex, great ex, exception to that as what was perpetrated 55 and 60 and plus of course even worse 60 70 80 90 years ago and they couldn't kind of make that connection and i was like man that's that's just terrible but it's weird it's a weird day it was a weird day but it was a good yesterday 
Maybe tomorrow it will be a good yesterday. Tomorrow is another day. And on that note, uh, I feel weird talking about this now. Um, <laughs> but I guess you have some news of the weird. Because guess what, folks? We don't have a we don't have a bonus segment next week either. Because there's another six movies coming up that we got to cover for next week. So we're kind of using this news of the weird to f- makeshift fill in. And I guess maybe I ruined it inadvertently because I don't even know what it is yet. So yeah, it's um, it's 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 definitely toilet humor. And the topic that we were just discussing doesn't deserve this as as its follow up. <laughs> so this is totally unintentional. Don't make any links between the two. But again, it's potty humor. This is via Vice.com. It's written by uh, staff writer Joel Gobley. And this was published on March 16th of last year. Yes, this is an older article, but it's one worth talking about. The title of the article is Someone on a British Airways plane took a shit so bad that it had to (laughs) turn around and come back again. (laughs) And it says this, a British Airways flight was forced to turn around and land over the weekend because somebody did a shit so bad, the plane was essentially rendered useless. Imagine living your life in the knowledge that you once turned so appallingly that a 747-400 had to turn around and land. Your liquid shit bought a $533 million airplane juddering out of the sky, brought a... Yeah, it's supposed to be brought, but it's just bought out of the sky. Imagine looking your loved ones in the face after that. Imagine hugging your mom. You couldn't. Your asshole is essentially a terrorist. Anyway, the BA flight from Heathrow to Dubai on Saturday had to turn around and flop back down again at Heathrow just 30 minutes into the seven-hour flight because somebody did a toilet crime. Hurstmere, Tory councillor Abshik Shashdev, who has clearly not heard the, quote, he who smelt it, dealt it, end quote, directive, happened to be on the flight, and as well as tweeting his response, quote, insane, our BA flight to Dubai returned back to Heathrow because of a smelly poo in the toilet. 15 hours until next flight, Hashtag British Airways, end quote, also spoke to the Daily Mail about the ordeal. Again, imagine making a smell so bad a Tory councillor talks to a national paper about it. The article goes on from there, but yeah, so it's a very effective article still, and I'm really glad I came across it because... I've been in some airplanes that smelled like you can smell the bathroom from, you know, 10, 15 feet away. And people were okay with that and were able to deal with it. And I was gagging. I cannot imagine how bad this shit was. I mean, airports should not have chipotles in them. There should be no chipotles. There should be no curry, curry, curry restaurants or taco shops with spicy ghost pepper hot sauce. or so. You can't have that. I'm only guessing because that would be the only reason why somebody could have taken a shit. So god-awful. Matt, what do you think? What is your analysis of this okay. situation? I, I, I want to make sure, because I, I, the, the person used the facilities, correct? Correct. As far as I'm concerned, you get a high-five. 
I mean, you know what? I would be angry and put out, but I would I would still have to salute the person who could manage to turn around <laughs> an international flight <laughs> to fumigate the cabin. <laughs> I mean, you have to respect that. That's a fucking achievement. I don't care if this person would be too embarrassed to ever want to hug their mom. I would salute them. You make me angry so, as fucking get out for, for the interruption to my life. But god damn it, do I respect you. I salute you. What should, it's probably like a grandmother, you know? I mean, how... What the fuck literally, literally crawled up and died in that person? <laughs> and you know, like, it's probably got to be one of those people where they never... They, they normally never use the bathroom on an airplane until this and that's one why. time. <laughs> and right when it happened, it's like, oh, shit. Uh, so uh, the next time, see, so here's what happens. If that was the case, I can see the next headline several years down the road. You know, random person dies from impacted colon on international flight. <laughs> causing too it to afraid have to, return. to poop. Yes, too afraid to poop. They die from an impacted colon. And the flight has to turn around anyway. Because now they died on the plane. <clears throat> so... Wow, that was amazing, dude. Seriously. Toilet humor. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Well, it turns out we've got some mail to check into. Would you like to uh, Would you like to do that? Yeah. I can't All say right, no. All right. Here we go. Yeah, well, you could. And I don't know what we would do if that happened because it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. But <laughs> it is what it is, I guess. All right, so uh, first up, we have a new follower on Twitter. I, I got to be honest with you. I'm a little wary about this, but I'm just going to read the follower. I'm not going to do anything more. Uh, apparently, Susan Bennett is following us on Twitter. Um, this is apparently the voice of Siri. So if this is the actual, real, legit Susan Bennett, then holy shit, that's pretty cool. Um, if this is not the real, legit Susan Bennett, which I think it's, which I think it is, well... Well, now, no, at least you know the, the name of the person who voices Siri. Well, it's definitely her. It's just, uh, you know, if you notice, like, her followers, the people that she follows and the people that follow her are, are very close to one another. The numbers are. So it's all about marketing. They just go and they mass, <gasps> you know, follow people just so those people will go and follow her. I see. I see. Yeah. That doesn't usually work in my case. That's probably why people eventually just drop off. Oh, well, this asshole's not following me. I'm following. You know, but... Um, <laughs> Apparently, some friends of ours, like Raphael, yeah, we haven't, man, we, you know, we need to talk to that motherfucker. We haven't talked to him in like four months. What the shit is that about? Dude, where you at? <clears throat> Hit us up. Send us an email. Or just, you know, call me, text me. You, you, you have that information. Uh, and also, uh, Steve Mudflat McGrew, who also follows us and is one hell of a funny comedian and is also tied to them. Apparently, they both follow susan bennett so that's kind of cool anyway so that so that was that um as it as it were um let's see here then we have a real email from the lovely diana weeks um let's see here she says uh the subject is to each their own room clever 
Very clever. Uh, she says, guys, guys, your last review of the movie Room had me concerned. I hope it's not marking the demise of your podcast. And as we covered at the beginning, of course, it's not, Diana. No, it's not. Don't worry. Uh, since when is it not okay to disagree? Can't we all just get along? Well, when it comes to Room and Hobo with a Shotgun and Rubber and other films like that, no, apparently we cannot. But that's okay. It's Variety is the spice of life. She says, she continues, anyways, I saw Room and fall somewhere in between your reviews. I think the kid who played Jack should get an Oscar for his multifaceted portrayal. However, the side stories were just not complete enough. I wish the dog had more screen time with Jack, too. Those two meeting was one of my favorite moments. Funny thing, I saw the trailer before the movie, movie and that fateful interview Joy gave never registered as an important scene. I don't even remember it. We'll see, there you go. I don't know how soon you saw it. I saw it literally right before I went and saw the movie, so that may have had something to do with it. But it did not affect Diana. It did not affect him. So, you know, maybe I just get oddly affected by these things. Overall, I enjoyed the time uh, I spent to watch it. My one-bedroom apartment I went back to suddenly looked huge. Peace and love, Diana Weeks. And at the end, she's got her signature, Stop and Breathe in Deep. Blow out the bad. I think that was for us, Tim, that last line. So we we will try to remember that the next time we want to be all disagreeing, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, awesome. Well, thank you very much, seriously, Diana, for the words again. And fear not. We're not going anywhere. Uh, if you would like to send us an email, you, of course, can send an email to the show at slscast.com. And, of course, if you would like to also join Susan Bennett and all of the other wonderful people who follow us on Twitter, you can follow us at the SLScast. So, yay for that. And then I think that's really about it in the email department. So are we ready for the news? Oh, yeah, it's about time. All right, folks. Here we go. It's the news. Yes. All right. So first up, we have a very interesting story from Reverb.com by way of Chris McMahon. Martin responds to hateful eight destruction of antique six string. Um, let me set this up here for you. Um, in the movie, the hateful eight, Kurt Russell's character, the, the hangman gets very upset, uh, with Jennifer Jason Lee's character. And she, as she's playing a song on the guitar, And he takes it from her and, I mean, just commences to beat the shit out of the thing. Now, if you've seen the movie, then you clearly know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't seen the movie yet, what the hell is the matter with you? Aside from that, it's not really a spoiler just to give you, just kind of set that up for you. Now, when you look, the look on her face in the movie, she is like just in shock, right? And, of course, you think it's because he just ripped it out of her hands and smashed it. No, it turns out... This particular guitar they were using was a 145-year-old antique guitar on loan from the Martin Museum. (laughs) And and Kurt Russell had no idea. (laughs) He just yanks the guitar at her and smashes the fuck out of it. (laughs) So, uh, yes. 
um, the the naturally the um this and and the the person who was in charge of this uh, his name is Dick Boke and he's the director of uh the museum archives and special projects for CF Martin and Company and he basically was saying that they were not aware that that was what had happened they did know that the guitar was ruined uh but they were not aware of how the guitar was ruined and they're naturally very aghast that this would have happened and quote uh, from Mr. Boak uh, or Boak quote, as a result of the incident, the company will never, I'm sorry, the company, blah, 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 blah. let me rephrase that, scratch that. Let's try that again. Quote, as a result of the incident, the company will no longer loan guitars to movies under any circumstances. End quote. Now, I mean, I can kind of, understand why in certain films and pieces you would want to have uh, to add an air of authenticity and to really um, get something that that can't be crafted like it used to be and, and reproductions um, just don't fit the bill based on what's going on in, in the in the action of the film so I mean I can kind of see why that would happen even though that would probably be especially in today's day and age a very rare circumstance but the hateful eight is not one of those movies and this is not one of those circumstances so why this thing ended up on the set in the first place is 100 percent beyond me um it's is a fascinating article, uh, and it actually uh, piggybacks onto a previous story that Reverb.com had also done. Uh, so be sure to go and check it out. It's not a very long article, just about five paragraphs, I think. So you can go and read in more detail. But um, again, Reverb.com, uh, by way of Chris McMahon. Martin responds to Hateful Eight, Destruction of Antique Six String. What do you think, Tim? Um, should... This thing have even been on set, or, or, or do you think the that uh, Mister Mister Boak is is overreacting a touch? If if there's <laughs> only six of them and it's over 140, I think even if it was, I, I don't know. Once something reaches like 60 years old, I think it shouldn't be touched by. Actors. <laughs> I see. So you're just not a fan of granny porn, then, huh? Granny porn. Once something is sixty years old, it shouldn't be touched. Hey, just you're the. <laughs> hey, you're you're the one that gives the colonic. I only receive it. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway, I'm sorry. You were saying. I don't know why they did that. Anyway, I mean, I wouldn't have known if they used a prop. I, I don't know much about guitars, you know. Until but... this article came out, because I even missed the first article, until I found, tracked down this article here, I had no idea they used a fucking 145-year-old guitar in the movie. I would, it, it did not affect my viewing experience at all, no, not knowing that that was an actual 145-year-old guitar. I wonder what Kurt Russell thought right when... They told him, oh, by the way, you see all that kindling? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's pretty, it, I mean, <laughs> the, the really sad part, I wish I could have been there because they asked, uh, they did ask for the pieces back, like 
you know, let, see if we can at least attempt to maybe repair it or, you know, something. <laughs> and <laughs> so they had to come back and say, quote, upon inspection of the pieces, we realized that the guitar was beyond fixing. It's destroyed, end quote. And that is, again, from Mr. Bowick or Boke. So anyways, that's my first piece of news. Thought that was rather interesting. What do you got for us, sir? All right, from filmschoolrejects.com, could variable ticket pricing save the movies? This is written by Christopher Campbell and was published February 1st of this year. And it says this, If the cost of a ticket is what keeps you from seeing more movies in the theater, Hollywood may have a solution. Specifically, three studios, Disney, Lionsgate, and Fox, are investing in a new ticketing service and app that could wind up lowering the price you pay for some titles. The catch? You need to be popular. Adam Tickets would determine when a sizable group of friends wants to see that same movie and then figure out when all those friends can be coordinated into seeing it together. The larger the group, the better the discount through a package deal. The savings of that deal will then be spread through the group. That may not actually sound like a new idea. Universities and businesses employing a large staff have been buying special discount tickets to their local cinemas in bulk for decades, then directly selling them to their students or workers. But those cheaper passes have always come with the disadvantage of not being redeemable for movies in their first two weeks of release. The irony is that it's the studio's fault that such discount tickets can be used for new movies. It's also by their demand when a theater chain discontinues a designated night of the week when all movies are discounted. Typically, the order comes when the big tentpole releases drop, but that's more often now than it used to be. Hollywood is finally seeing the potential benefits of lowering ticket costs, at least in some cases. Another idea at Adam Tickets is that movies performing poorly could drop in price. That's definitely showing an assumption that the biggest reason a certain movie isn't doing well is because people don't want to spend so much for it. Would Steve Jobs have been more popular for less? So, we may get second-run rates for some movies still in first-run theaters. That still doesn't seem too weird, but perhaps price dropping could lead to actual variable pricing. While some of the movies quickly discounted may be expensive flops like Jupiter Ascending, others could be smaller movies that already deserve to be cheaper to see them, say Jurassic World. This is something that I and others have been considering the pros and cons of since theaters began charging more for IMAX in 3D shows, an indication that those formulas had greater value to moviegoers, mostly the 3D surcharges, were just for the production and cleaning of the glasses. It does sound logical in theory to price movies based on their budgets. End all quotes there. What do you think, Matt? Do you think this works or not? I personally think movie prices should just be cheaper all around. Who's going to be in charge of setting these ticket prices for one thing? It's going to get confusing if it's up to the uh, the theater chains themselves. I, I share that sentiment. I think it's uh, too, too all over the place, too all over the board. And the fact that you're trying... I mean, I, I applaud that they are trying to um, use technology to kind of help figure out 
how to get more bang for their buck so that they know better what to charge. What I think is interesting is that those apps that they're using are actually going to take the data from their phones and their conversations and all that kind of stuff. Cause you know, that's going to be part of the, you know, this app needs access to. And the thing is, is that it's going to be able to use that to actually determine what people want to see. So in, in, on the surface, it's, it's a little too complicated. And I think that it's not really useful, but I think on the back end where they can aggregate all the data, that they're getting, it will help them make better movie choices in terms of what will be produced going forward. You still have to get people to sign up for that though. And I think that you're going to need a better, you need a better draw than maybe we'll give you a dollar off the movie. (laughs) So that is what I think. Well, then, next up from me, from thedailybeast.com, by way of Jen Yamato. The Coen brothers. The Oscars are not that important. Uh, the revered filmmaking duo of Jill and Ethan Coen open about their new film, Hail Caesar, Diversity in Hollywood, and much more. This is a um, th- this is an interview piece uh, from the Daily Beast that Jen Yamato did. Uh, but I wanted to zero in on one thing here that, that they discussed and it's dealing. And of course, this is kind of going back to the hashtag Oscar. So white thing, but I'm not trying to pick on that or, you know, just make mountains out of molehills or, you know, beat the dead horse, so to speak. I just think it's, it's, there's some very salient points made here, and I think that it also kind of goes to the heart of the media as well, because this is the, the exchange that I'm going to read to you is very telling of the media end and also of someone who has been in the business for a while and actually has a very thoughtful response to that. So here we go. This I'm just going to read this one section of the article. I encourage you to read the whole thing because it's a very well-written piece, and I like that they have uh, much more to say. But here we go. So from the article, By my count, there are a few non-Caucasian characters in Hail Caesar, but subtract the handful of nameless Asian waiters seen working at a local Chinese joint, and that figure drops down to just one with a memorable speaking part. Veronica Osorio as Carlotta Valdez, a Carmen Miranda-esque Latina starlet who gets set up on a studio-arranged date with crooning cowboy star Hobie Doyle, played by Einrich. Such overwhelming whiteness could conceivably be explained away by pointing to the milieu of Tinseltown circa the 1950s, when this industry's racial demographic was far less diverse than it is today. Now I'm going to stop right there because that's exactly the point. The film takes place in a time and a space and a period where, like it or not, and it's not a proud moment, other ethnicities were kept away from the limelight and from the work and even from a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. Um, and so you would not have a great deal of diversity to choose from. We pick back up the article. 
I asked the Coens to respond to criticisms that there aren't more minority characters in the film. In other words, why is hashtag Hail Caesar so white? Quote, why would there be, end quote, countered Joel Coen. Joel Cohen, quote, I don't understand the question. No, I understand that you're asking the question. I don't understand where the question comes from. Not why people want more diversity. Why would they single out a particular movie and say, why aren't there black or Chinese or Martians in this movie? What's going on? That's the question I don't understand. The person who asks that question has to come in the room and explain it to me. End quote. It goes on just a little bit to say this. As filmmakers, is it important or not to consciously factor in concerns like diversity, I asked. Quote, not in the least, Ethan, uh, end quote, Ethan answered. Quote, it's important to tell the story you're telling in the right way, which might involve black people or people of whatever heritage or ethnicity, or it might not, end quote. And I'm going to stop there. That's all of the article that I'm going to read because, again, that's this is the most salient uh, portion of the article you it, it seems like the media wants to latch on to certain themes and ideas regardless of how prescient they are or how important they are or sometimes lack thereof and then try to shoehorn anything that they see watch or talk about to fit into that narrative and they and oftentimes it seems like they do that to the detriment of either what it is they're trying to discuss or to the detriment of their own integrity not journalistically or anything like that but simply by saying by by ignoring the mere facts of the situations of where certain productions come from not all but certain productions that they end up with um, they end up missing the point, as is the case with a period piece like Hail Caesar. Um, what do you think, Tim? What, do you have anything that you would like to weigh in on this? Do you agree, disagree with either the Cohen, either of the Cohen brothers and or Miss Yamato? It annoys me. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think of... I, I don't want to say anything... I don't. I don't want to come across insensitive because... A lot of people could easily think that whenever you're talking about stuff like this, especially with movies and trying to portray a specific demographic in some way without hurting people's feelings is difficult to do. I mean, hell, even Zoolander pissed people off, the trailer for the Zoolander uh, 2, because Benjamin Cumberbatch is playing a trans uh, transsexual or transgendered person, I guess. Mm-hmm. And people were all up in arms about, oh, that's... Have you seen a Ben Stiller movie? Did you Have you seen Tropic Thunder or even the first Ben Stiller movie? He's taking on fashion. And right now there's a transformative period for the fashion industry because of the acceptance of transgendered people. And bringing it back to Hell Caesar is that, okay, so if we do have African-American characters, would these people still be upset by the type of characters that those people would be playing if they were in the movie? I mean, it also doesn't seem like it kind of, now that a lot of studios and movies have been creating more roles for minorities in general as a whole, 
you know. Well, yeah, I mean, they still have a lot of work to do, but you do see Latinos. So instead of it being, okay, just minorities, now it's, okay, well, where, where are the black characters at? And so just kind of like what you were saying, it, nobody can win right now because everything is, is hashtag so white. No, and again, I, like I said, I'm not trying to beat the horse to death. I just think it's interesting how journalists will focus on uh, things and and to be clear this article was from four days ago so i mean this i mean this is a pretty recent article this was literally coming in over the weekend thursday um and i don't know i i just think that uh it's important to pick your battles i guess is the point and i liked and i really liked what the cohen brothers had to say about it so anyways uh what else you got there sir Oh crap! I just realized what our I just realized what we're at on time. I'm gonna stop my news there, <laughs> and let Tim close out the news. So go ahead, sir. I will close out the news with well, I'll, I'll lump all these together. The two short ones, one being that Lionsgate is developing Saul Legacy. That's right, Saul Eight via BloodyDisgusting.com. Back in 2004, Jigsaw became a household name when Lionsgate carved out a theatrical release for James Wan and Lee Wanell's low-budget low festival favorite Saw. It was so successful that it became an annual tradition to expect a new Saw sequel each and every October. The games, however, came to an end with 2010's Saw 3D, the final chapter, which was pegged as the end of the franchise, yet the final scene set up a world that could easily be expanded. Since then, Lionsgate has been taking a breather. We've reported multiple times that the seventh Saw film wasn't the end, and that the studio has even considered remaking one and one L's film. That's one of the most important horror films of all time. After five years of pitches and re-release of the classic back in 2014, Lionsgate has decided to move forward with an eighth film in the franchise, according to a trustworthy tracking board. Lionsgate has tapped writing duo jo uh, Josh Stolberg and Pete Goldfinger, the duo behind Sorority Row, Piranha 3D, and Piranha 3DD, to pin Saw Legacy, although there's no story details at this time. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, yeah, they should not remake the goddamn movie because it hasn't even been ten fucking years. Or it has been. It's only been ten fucking years. You don't need to remake Saw. It's it's dumb. Just make, If you're going to do another one, just do another one. There are more stories within the Saw universe, I guess, to explore like copycats and all that jazz do just do something just do something like that matt do you have any comments on this do you want to see another saw movie or yes I, I agree with you do not as a matter of fact just don't just stop uh whether or not it was the intentional end of the series people pretty much took it as the end of the series and it was fine but i mean uh unfortunately um sony's record uh not that this pertains to you or your opinions obviously and i don't work for them so um but you know oh you mean you, if you look at, no 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 i mean i mean sony because it's it's like Lionsgate is taking cues from other companies um oh and, i see oh rebooting and yeah with rebooting and stuff because like with spider-man yeah. spider-man got rebooted uh you know, after less than 10 years from the first one, and now has been rebooted again after less than five years from the reboot. So, 
um, you know, I think they've just Lionsgate knows that they have a property that's worth um, that that they can produce on the cheap, that they can that can get you know tens of tens, probably even a hundred million dollars without breaking a sweat, and that's why they're doing it. So we must stand strong and not go see Saw Eight or Saw the Rebirth or the Revenge of Saw or Saw versus Rubber. No, just. Don't, okay, I would see Saw versus Rubber. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't even too. like Rubber, but I would see Saw versus Rubber. <laughs> so, anyways, no. In short, though, dude, seriously, I totally agree. Do not make any more of these. Don't don't do it. Alrighty, and I'll uh, wrap up the news with these last two pieces, real quick from Pace.com. Critically acclaimed horror film, The Witch, is Satan approved. Written by Lauren Loudermilk. Really, that's her last name. L-O-U-D-E-R-M-I-L-K. Lauren Loudermilk. And this was just published. Any relation to Elliot from Scrooged? Oh, probably. Yeah. Outstanding. Um, And super short, I'm looking forward to this movie, The Witch. It looks legitimately scary. Uh, But the article says that you may think that praise from Sundance would be the ultimate approval... You'd be wrong. Roger Eager's new movie, The Witch, which was a hit at last year's Sundance, just got the highest praise in the land, that of the Satanic Temple. The film is based on primary sources from 17th century New England about witchcraft in the 1630s, and Jex Blackmore, national spokesperson for the Satanic Temple, says it's, quote, a transformative satanic experience, end quote. The temple will host four screenings of The Witch out February 19th in New York, Austin, Los Angeles, and Detroit, so go ahead and book your tickets now. Just don't forget your ritualistic knife and robes for the midnight sacrifice. Yes, you know, it's funny. Now The Witch, this movie The Witch and the SLS cast, has at least one thing in common. We are both have been labeled as transformative satanic experiences (laughs) okay (laughs) and lastly from deadline hollywood or just deadline.com our buddy lars von trier's antichrist latest film banned by french court amid ratings furor as in that's the latest film that the french court is banning not that it's Lars von Trier's latest film because this movie came out like three movies ago for him and it says this French conservative values group Promovur has won another victory in its crusade against sex and violence on French screens Lars von Trier's 2009 drama Antichrist which scooped the best actress prize for Charlotte Gainsborough in Cannes has seen its operating visa revoked by the Administrative Court of Paris. The court cited, quote, scenes of great violence and non-simulated sex, end quote, in its Wednesday decision, per multiple reports. The move comes at a time when the industry is seeking reform of the rating system to keep it out of courts and weaken promovure, which has spearheaded and won campaigns against several major titles in recent months, mostly over sexual content. It's also particularly disconcerting in a country that so highly values its freedom of expression, and which saw it so devastatingly attacked in 2015. 
French film body ARP today came out swinging in response, saying that it was, quote, once again stunned, end quote, that judges have challenged a decision made by the cultural minister in the Classification Commission, and that a, quote, repressive and extremist association, end quote, such as Primavore, quote, should decide what we can and cannot see in France, end quote. This is the third time that Antichrist, which did its fair share to scandalize the, cro- the Croset, when it originally debuted, has seen its rating challenged. It was previously banned by the State Council in 2009 and 2012 before being reinstated by the Cultural Ministry with a negative 16th certificate. Yesterday, judges yanked its certificate again. An appeal is possible, I am told. And they go on to say that Primavore has previously gone after the ratings classifications of Gaspar Knows Love, uh, Virgin, Vir, uh, Virgin Dispense, Basimoy, and Universal's Fifty Shades of Grey and Von Trier's own nymphomaniac film. End all quotes and article readings there. Matt, comments, questions, or concerns? Nope. Regarding censoring what people watch in France? <laughs> no. Um, I just think if it was... If it was that important of a thing, they probably should have done it like maybe when the movie came out <laughs> instead of after everybody saw it. <laughs> Just, you know, whatever. <sighs> All right. Well, that does conclude the news. And as was noted before, we will not have, we do not have a bonus segment this week. We'll not have one next week either. I think we'll be through the bulk of everything by the end of next week. Yes, Tim. This next week should pretty much wrap it up. Yes, ne- next week we'll wrap it up in in the condom that is the Academy Awards nominations. There you go. So we'll have we'll have everything knocked out, and then we'll get back to our bonus segments. So yay! All right. So in that case, we are going to jump right into it with the movies. <laughs> for this week are Amy, The Look of Silence, Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom, Cartel Land, and What Happened, Miss Simone. What would you like to go and cover first, Mr. Tim, sir? How about Amy? Okay, Amy. This, I think we will agree, uh, this was the loser of the week for me. Yes, no, yeah, for yeah, for, for me too. Now, I'm not okay. saying that it's not a horrible movie, but it, it was definitely oh, out of every all the other ones. It was definitely the least favorite. Yes, it was. It was the least best. <laughs> so, um, all right, Amy, 2015 British documentary film depicts life and death of British singer songwriter Amy Winehouse. Uh, it's directed by Asif Kapadia, and basically goes through. Ostensibly, I mean, her whole life. It it, uh, it actually opens with a uh, home movie from when she was 14 and even goes all the way up to uh, slightly after her death um, with uh, images from the funeral and stuff. And then basically kind of chronicles her life growing up and uh, getting some note, actually finding a, a voice in her career and then getting famous, the media attention, and then, of course, the fall with the alcoholism. 
Um, here's here's where I land on this. I think that I was never a big fan of Amy Winehouse personally. Uh, her music, uh, her style. I mean, it was great. It was it was new. And then of course we had um, Adele. You know, kind of shot out of nowhere at the same time, and um, they sounded kind of similar and everything. Uh, I landed more in the Adele camp. But I don't know. She just never really moved me in that way in regards to her music or anything. And that's not to say that, you know, oh, she wasn't worth listening to or anything like that. But it was just, for me, I was kind of looking forward to this documentary as kind of a way to, oh, well, you know, now I can appreciate what it is that I missed. And the thing is, is that I think that because of how brightly she burned as her flame went out... Um, this documentary was an extreme effort to humanize her so that more people would understand exactly her, exactly what made Amy Winehouse, Amy Winehouse in as when she started from when she was growing up to when she actually did explode and have a big music career to how it all came crashing down. And while I can certainly appreciate that and, and it does do a good job of that, and it's very moving. I mean, everybody from uh, Most Deaf is in it. Her parents are in it. Uh, even former uh, managers and stuff like that. Tony Bennett. Um, you know, you've all of these people who provided uh, interviews and or were seen and talked about or discussing Amy Winehouse and archive footage and uh, what have you. And, of course, lots of bonus footage that had never been seen prior to this documentary. Really did a good job of humanizing her and explaining her as a human being who had flaws just like everyone else and was lucky enough to become famous. The thing that, the, but the thing for me that really drew it away as opposed to all the other documentaries that I watched this week was that it kind of did too good of a job because I just kind of, it, it still didn't make me appreciate her music. It didn't make me appreciate um, what, the world will miss as a result of her being gone. And it didn't really do a, uh, it didn't to me do any justice to, you know, why her music was so transformative at all. And so instead I felt like I was watching, um, this documentary about just a regular human being. And that's not to say regular human beings can't be fascinating. Clearly they can. Um, but, it just didn't translate into anything more. It was just kind of like, oh, okay, well, this was a person who had an interesting life, and not it wasn't it wasn't great for me. It wasn't bad, but I didn't even really like it at the end of the day. So I applaud the effort. It definitely humanized her. I you know I feel like I kind of understand her as a person a little bit better, but it was just a two point seven five star movie for me. I'm sorry, didn't quite do it. What do you got there, Tim? So I, too, like Matt, I wasn't really a big fan of Amy Winehouse when she was alive. And it actually wasn't until she passed away when I really knew anything about her. I mean, in 2008, 2009, 2010, I was working and going to school and doing theater, just constantly busy. And But at the time in, in Texas, where I was in Tomball, Texas, uh, you know, a lot of people really didn't listen to her all that much. I think at that time, Justin Timberlake kind of was dominating the the airways for sure when it came to popular music outside of country. And so 
I wasn't really familiar with with her music and her personal life and all the stuff that she's been going through and how much uh, how how much it, it affected her over the years. With saying that, it's a very effective documentary, and it's also a very tragic documentary. I was saddened by it, and I really felt for her. I also found it very creepy how often she spoke of death and how that it would be uh, all the fame and mass popularity that would eventually kill her. And this really leads into my big beef with the movie, because I, I was kind of wondering, especially by the end, why blame wasn't put on her father or her then-husband at the time, because they both were the ones who really failed her. The movie makes it feel like it was her fans that that were the problem. Like, she couldn't handle the fans. She couldn't handle the fans. No, it was... She was on drugs. That didn't help. Her father was screwing her over. That didn't help. Her then-husband was feeding her drugs and just was kind of writing her coattails of fame and having money. So I, I would have liked to have seen a confrontation, those two being confronted about being the ones that really, really screwed her over, and not just her mass overnight popularity. And that's really the beef, my only beef with the movie. I also find it amazing how modern documentaries have so much footage of its subject. Like, we'll even talk about this, I'm sure, with Winter on Fire, the Ukraine documentary. There's just so much damn footage to where if it was about any uprising from the 30s or 40s, 50s or whatever, even, I mean, even in the 80s, you know, you're not going to have as much footage that these movies do. Uh, More so with Winter on Fire than Amy, the entire documentary is footage from the sub you know of the movie it's not you don't ever see people really being interviewed it's footage of what the subject is about and it's fantastic it's really amazing how modern docs are changing the way how we're going to be able to view documentaries i mean it's really cool it's really neat so i guess with amy i give this one i i liked it i think i give this one 3.5 out of 5 Fair enough. Okay, where would you like to turn from here? How about what happened, Miss Simone? All right, what happened, Miss Simone? 2015 biographical documentary film about Nina Simone. Uh, It's directed by Liz Garbus. And this definitely covers the life of Nina Simone. Uh, She was actually born, if I remember, uh, born Eunice Wayman. And... She grew up um, in a time of great racial segregation. She was born in 1933 um, and was fortunate enough to have a very few people around her who were able to guide her in terms of being able to play the piano uh, to the point that she actually was seriously a contender in the classical world um, for being a, a classic pianist or a classical pianist. Um, And it's interesting to note that they, um, that it was, that she actually tried out for, uh, I I want to say she went to like Juilliard or something like that, but then ultimately uh, through a scholarship and stuff, and then tried out for one other program and was basically turned down because she was black. Uh, She didn't find that out for a few years after that, but um, it was that, it was, being turned down for that, that ultimately led her to start playing in clubs and stuff. And then that's where, 
she was told that she had to start singing or she would lose out on her club gigs because she was just playing everything she could think of on the piano. And then she started singing and bam, Nina Simone was born. Also, uh, she made her name Nina Simone so that her mama wouldn't find out that she was playing in clubs <laughs> uh, either. Um, this this film is a fascinating look at a charismatic and troubled woman uh, who wanted so desperately to be a part of something and make a difference that she failed to realize what kind of difference she was already making. Um, and her career and her celebrity also collided head to head in both good and bad ways with the civil rights movement of the 60s. And I got to tell you, I mean, she took that as her life's mission and never looked back. Um, so this movie is, uh, it, again, much like Amy uses, you know, rare archival footage and stuff like that. Um, it goes into her own personal diaries. Uh, it, you know, has, um, archival footage and also interviews of people like her daughter currently, um, alive and did recent interviews as well as archive footage with like her ex-husband from, from 10 or 10 or 11 years ago, things of that nature. She was a woman who was, you know, abused by her husband, um, also abused her daughter and yet was someone who was still very brilliant at the piano and was able to incorporate classical piano movements and skills and ideas and, and philosophies into her jazz playing, which completely turned that on its head. And it was that that led her, you know, to, to fame. Um, but when the movie and the movie is fantastic all the way up until that point, and then the movie, and then the documentary starts focusing on her life as she decided to embrace the civil rights movement. And of course, I mean, no one's going to fault anybody for that. I mean, uh, there's the biggest thing in the world at the time, and especially for the people who were directly involved in that movement, who had the ability to to shape change and inform the world, not just the country, but the world of what was coming. Oh my God, I mean... What a time to be alive, right? The thing was is that as much as she embraced it, she kind of couldn't let it go even as the movement was passing her by as it in in its most immediate terms started achieving its gains uh, or at least uh, achieving its goals slowly but surely. And it's from there that the movie I felt for me kind of starts going off the rails a bit. And and so as her life becomes disjointed and she steps away from everything and kind of walks um, and literally goes off to Africa a la Dave Chappelle, um, the, the, the documentary itself also seems to kind of lose focus and can't quite pick up where it, where it, 
left off, especially as she tries to come back into the music business to at least try and make a, a name for herself. And they go into some mental problems that she had later in life um, and certain decisions that she had to make and certain decisions that were in some ways made for her. And for something that had such a great focus on the beginnings of her life and the importance of her career, it seemed to decide that instead of just kind of maybe creating like a five or six minute epilogue, it decided to take 20, 22 minutes to close out her life up to about 1993. Um, and then just kind of give you a couple paragraphs at the end. And that whole last section, the whole last 20 minutes is just really, for me, very disjointed, um, did not fit the narrative flow. Uh, it was good to have the information, but... I just felt like it could have been delivered in a much smoother way, especially as contrasted with the first two thirds of the film, which are just ultimately, you know, fantastic. Um, the music is awesome, though, for sure. And the times in which she lived were fascinating, but ultimately, um, the movie just kind of fell off at the end. So I give this one 3.5 out of 5. Yeah, I think you and I are on the same page with this one. One thing I didn't mention with Amy that this one suffers from as well is length. You know, like Amy, but to to a lesser extent, uh, I think this would have been more effective if it were 15 minutes shorter. The third act becomes uneven by way of uh, the pacing and the storytelling especially. And the movie doesn't really do, the documentary doesn't do the best job at making me want to be on Nina Simone's side by the end because you see like you see her demons you see what kind of person how ugly of a person that she could be and it wasn't her fault I mean she had a problem but the movie doesn't really do a good job at trying to justify that stuff and I couldn't really figure out if if that's what it was purposely trying to do because by the end of the movie, I was left with the impression of, you know, it's sad that she and other human beings have to go through chronic bipolarism and horrible depression and all these different things that she had to suffer, that she suffered through for so long. But at the end of the movie, it was just kind of like, oh yeah, this was her problem. This is what, this is how she dealt with it or what happened. And then the movie kind of goes on like with Matt saying that it starts wrapping up her final 20, 25 years of her life. It's a good movie. It's just, I wanted to be on her side, wanted to be on her side. And I think if the movie was 15 minutes shorter, it would have had a better chance of doing that because the pacing would, would still be there. It's on Netflix. So I had to pause the movie because I really had to go to the restroom. So when I paused it, I thought, Oh, man, there's probably an hour into it. No, it was 27 minutes into it. And from then on, I couldn't help but thinking, like, you know, it, it should be, they, they should be wrapping this up pretty soon. Based on the rating I'm going to be giving it, it sounds like it should be a lot lower. It, it's not. It's it's a really good documentary, to a certain extent, a very effective documentary. And it's not like your run-of-the-mill documentary biopics of singers from that era. Four out of five. I still thought it was very good and definitely well worth watching. All right, sir. What do you want to do now? Cardleland. Cardleland? Yeah, Cardleland. Cardleland. It's the new land brought to you by Mexican drug cartels. Cardleland. 
Um, Disney's uh, <laughs> it's Disney's take on the Mexican cartel. Screw Avatar <laughs> Land. We need a cartel land. <laughs> All right, Cartel Land, Oscar, uh, Oscar-nominated, of course, documentary film directed by Matthew Heineman, uh, and this is about the Mexican drug war, but specifically the vigilante groups that formed uh, on both sides of the border, a heavier focus given to the Mexican side than the American side, uh, that that formed as a result of the drugs and smuggling and human trafficking that go on uh, at the border. Now, uh, this was a fascinating, fascinating, fascinating film. Uh, All the way until I realized that the filmmakers, I guess, uh, you know, Mr. Heineman here, either... They either got duped or they didn't really understand what story they wanted to tell and just decided to tell whatever story they could find. And they began to edit the film to reflect whatever it is they wanted us to know, not what was really being documented. Now, I'm not taking uh, uh, just, just, you know, heads up here. It's still a four star movie, but. Um, I just didn't appreciate the fact that they already had such compelling um material to work with that they could have just that they could have just watched the simple rise and fall of a vigilante group in Mexico and let that be a very simple story and still engaging and provocative without necessarily trying to stamp it out with the people who are on the border in America doing their side, because I think that would have been a a very good, maybe, you know, 30-minute documentary on what they were trying to do. Because as the movie rolls on, as the documentary rolls on, and they try and kind of pivot the um, stuff that's going on with the American side, it they're using that to kind of punctuate portions of the story from the Mexican side. And you can start to see that um that they they're not quite making caricatures or making fun of the people who are on the american side of the border but they do present them in a massively stereotypical way and uh you know is sitting around watching fox news listening to sean hannity and you know power to the people kind of thing when they also show just exactly how complex the issue is and how these people, despite um, maybe being a little bit more self-important than they really are, um, still try to work as much as they can within the confines of the United States system by contacting the authorities whenever they come across the coyotes and stuff like that. Then you converse that by when they take that punctuation off of them and putting it back onto the vigilante group, they start to, they, they kind of like use that to start a new paragraph of the story that's happening in Mexico. The thing is, is that the story is the same story that's always happened. The government is corrupt. The government um, doesn't help the people. The vigilante groups are there to fight the... Um, are there to just take back whatever land that they can get 
from the cartels because the government isn't helping them. And then slowly but surely, as they, as the vigilante group gains more ground, they start behaving more like the cartels in the first place until eventually they are soaked up by the government, which is corrupt to begin with. Um, the thing is, though, is that 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 in and of itself is still a compelling story but the way that they the way that they show it and tell it is done with editing and not with storytelling so what i mean by that is is they have a particular scene where the auto defenses which is the actual vigilante group that's being profiled here and its head dr jose morales who uh, conveniently ends up in jail for not joining up with the government because the government's corrupt and so the government puts him in jail um is is heavily going after this one particular town and they portray this this as a victory for auto defenses and everything and they're showing all this this stuff where the auto defenses has taken basically taken back this town um and they show the people who got captured and then like 12 to 15 minutes later, they show the same people who got captured being processed after they were being, after they were captured. And it's, and, and they present this as if they're not the same people that just got caught when you were supposed to feel happy for the auto defenses. Now you're supposed to be kind of like, well, these auto defenses people are going a little too far uh with what they're doing and it's the same people in the same situation that you were just cheering them on for and so when i noticed all of these same characters from you know 15 minutes before when the auto defenses were the good guys i'm like hang on and so you know i'm and again not saying they're being disingenuous uh because maybe that was the only recourse they had left but you have to be really careful because if your editing exposes you in that regard, then it opens you up to being, to looking like you're disingenuous. The thing is though, is that the story, especially on the Mexican side is so damn compelling that you still want to see what happens. So that's why I still come away with four stars, but I really think that this could have been done a lot better and formatted um, much differently. So what do you got there, Tim? Cartel Land was the most or my most anticipated documentary that was nominated this year. I am fascinated by documentaries like guerrilla documentation. You know, they're behind enemy lines. These guys are put in danger. I mean, there's a couple of them, I guess, who are working with some of these vigilantes. And, you know, they're, they're risking their lives because, God, there's some footage when they're under attack and, man, this guy is jumping out of cars, jumping into a car, you know, and it's crazy. And you can see the bullets zipping by and hitting the ground next to him, and it's insane. And the story alone about trying to keep the cartels from, or, or actually trying to see the inner workings of the cartels in the corrupt government and how the two are linked, you know, all that's just fascinating. But... This doc does, however, lead you to believe that at the end of the documentary, you will see, you the audience, will see that there's hope in the horizon. But that's not necessarily the case when you do get to the end of the movie. You're not really left with 
anything positive. Uh, this is from the Mexican stories. This doesn't really reflect the vigilantes in New Mexico or Arizona. But by the end of the documentary, there really isn't hope in the horizon. At the end, you're just left with the complete opposite. Other than the vigilantes in Arizona, other than that storyline, every other group, and the, the Mexican group, they're not really the greatest people. For one thing, they're easily duped by the corrupt government. They label themselves as true patriots and fighting, you know, fighting the revolution for the people of Mexico and the people in these individual towns and districts, I guess, to keep the cartels from killing families, loved ones, taking over towns, and making you pay illegal taxes and whatnot. But then you find find out by the end of the movie that a lot of these same vigilantes partake in the same things that the cartels and the corrupt governments do. Cheating on your wife on a regular basis, you know, having separate lives, doing this, doing that. So you're led to believe that, okay, well, these are really good people. And by the end of it, they're really not. Really not. And it was interesting because i don't really i kind of think that that once the filmmakers as they i don't know if they were maybe while they were shooting it or as they were piecing the film together i think it felt like they just kind of realized well crap we're not really left with any more good characters except the vigilantes in arizona i mean that alone would have been i think a more fascinating documentary for story-wise, at least, and how I think the overall film would have come out, I think that one would have, would have been a little bit better. Well, at least compared to how Cartel Land is now. So yeah, I just wanted, and it, you know, it just felt like they ran out of a story. It just, all these people are still, are bad. They, they became corrupt themselves. And what can we do? I mean, this, they made it sound like, like this was going to be, you know, their only hope. Who can they really trust to lead a rebellion or a re revolution against the Mexican government? Apparently, not really anybody. <laughs> so, and that that's really the the my my big complaint, and it's kind of a big complaint. Three point seven five out of five. Check it out. I'd be very interested in hearing what you all think. But cartel land on my end. Three point seven five out of five. Right on, right on. All right, where do you want to go, sir? We got two left. Well, the last two were definitely my favorite. Uh, same. And I will say that um, the one about Ukraine was my favorite. I don't know if that helps you any. <laughs> no. Well, okay. We'll do. We'll do my favorite next. Then we'll do uh, the Look of Silence. Okay, Look of Silence. Uh, it's a Danish documentary film directed by Joshua Oppenheimer, and it is about the Indonesian killings of 1965 and 66. Um, this is actually kind of a companion piece to the act of killing and uh, is basically telling the story of an anonymous man. They, it, You don't know who he is. Um, whose brother was brutally murdered during the communist purge, I'm using air quotes here, in 1965, and is actually able to confront the men responsible. Um, and not only that, he was also able to um, visit some of their collaborators, one of which was his uncle, uh, sadly, um, and they use the pretense of an eye exam to do this. It's kind of interesting. So uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's definitely a, you know, historical aspect in terms of, you know, explaining the 
you know, the actual pogrom in and of itself uh, back in 64, I'm sorry, 65 and 66, and also kind of explains this man's perspective and kind of shows the long-term results of these dealings that, uh, sure, they happened 50 years ago, but you you come to realize just how not long ago 50 years can really be. Um, for me, I found this film to be incredibly moving, but um, and this is going to be kind of a short one for me, uh, because the mo- the film is incredibly moving, but somewhat unsatisfying, because um, mainly because, I don't know, this is real life, and yes, I've said it a bajillion times before, you know, it, not everything has a happy ending, and sometimes uh, you need a, you know, sometimes the bad guys win, and you know what? I'm I'm generally, depending on the situation, I, I feel like I'm generally okay with that in movies when it's the movies. When it's real fucking life, I have a distinct problem with it. Uh, <laughs> and I know it's not right, but whatever. Um, and so I give this one 4.25 because I really felt... I, the, 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 the feeling of dissatisfaction at what this poor man experienced and not really... Not, I mean, ultimately not really getting any justice for it, um, frustrated me. And But it's still a great, great movie and very moving, very powerful. Uh, I think that really in terms of a... Um, in terms of any kind of cinematography or anything like that, I think that because of the subject matter, it was kind of held back from really being any more grander in scope uh, than it could have been. I think the interview process was was as good as it could have been also given those limitations. So 4.25 out of 5, definitely number 2 out of 5 for me this week. Uh, but it was apparently Tim's number 1. So let him tell you why now! <laughs> It's a very unsatisfying ending. Uh, for those of you who... I, actually, before you watch this movie, please watch The Act of Killing. Watch that documentary. Yes, it's over two hours long. The director's cut is almost three hours long. Both are on Netflix. But you have got to watch The Act of Killing. The Act of Killing is a broader take on, on somebody trying to figure out exactly why these generals and why these men, mainly men, uh, decided to kill, murder over one million innocent Indonesians or communists. But the movie handles it in a very creative way by allowing those who were in charge of murdering all these people act out these scenarios in various Hollywood genres, like a 50s gangster movie rendition of why they decided it's it sounds a little weird but it's really good and incredibly satisfying and the look of silence is definitely on an even more personal scale surprisingly than the act of killing though the ending is unsatisfying and you you can't i mean especially with something like this it didn't it didn't bother me too much i give it 4.75 out of 5 uh, and it doesn't bother me too much because it's definitely the journey that the movie takes you on. And it's not really even a journey. But by the end of the movie, you you feel like you know this family. You know, you notice that they're real people. And you get an idea of how 
evil and how removed from humanity these anti-communists were and still are because Joshua does Oppenheimer does a fantastic job at really showing you how human this family really is and how this son, he just really wants to get down to the bottom. He just can't fathom. He can't understand why, why people would do this, why these men decided to do this. He just wants them to apologize, not necessarily to apologize, but he wants them to admit that they feel some regret for what they had done. And just those interactions alone is well worth the watch. It's amazing. You couldn't see any of this shit in a movie, in a scripted Hollywood movie. You couldn't find anything remotely like this. It's a very, it's, it's both a satisfying and unsatisfying documentary viewing experience. Because, and it's only unsatisfying because of what you're left with at the end, which isn't not much than when the man who's looking for the truth or looking for answers started with. So again, Look of Silence, 4.75 out of 5 for me. Cool. And just as a note, uh, I went back and checked here. Episode 60 from February 1st of 2014, so a little over two years ago, was the episode in which we covered uh, the act of killing. And that garnered a an SLS cast rating of five stars because we both gave the act of killing five stars. So a little bit more of a slip for me than for Tim, but still obviously a very good movie and you should check it out. And I guess with nothing else left to do, it is now time to cover Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom, 2015 documentary film about the Euro Euro Maiden protests in Ukraine. Uh, It's directed by uh, Evgeny Afanivsky, and I apologize if I am uh, butchering that name. So what this is covering is the basically the 93, 94 days back at the end of uh, 2013, kind of into 2014. Um, right? 20... Yeah, 2013 into 2014, I believe, uh, that Ukraine basically fought back for peacefully, fought back for... Uh, it's right to take a a very bad president uh, out of office and do it do it through peaceful protest and work with the system that they had to um, basically have a revolution. Um, and it, it it doesn't really have a star exactly. There's no real one person that it focuses on uh, because. In the spirit of a true communal uh, movement and revolution, as it w- as it were, there are a whole bunch of actors that come to play, um, and they there were some television personalities, there were some musical artists there, there were also lawyers who were ha- who who came out and were helping these people, and they're relating their stories and everything. Um, former military people who were helping to uh, get the the people in. Uh, the people in uh, Maiden Square um, 
to understand, hey, this is, you know, this is how you can fortify yourselves. This is what has to happen. And also, in no uncertain terms, showed just exactly what kind of government they were dealing with. Um, and a more boots-on-the-ground approach to perhaps maybe how um, Vladimir Putin and his cronies in other countries and or in not other countries behaved and were supported and the kind of actions and tactics they used to suppress peaceful protest. And you see how this protest evolved into a revolution from just kids, you know, partying and not and I say partying loosely because this wasn't this was not hardcore drinking and good but but at the beginning it really was you really get the feeling that it was just kind of this you know jovial get together I mean we're we're upset about what's going on but we're more happy to be together and and you know the idea that all these people can just come and 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 uh and start change just with the getting together and singing and being together. And you see that, and then after nine days of that, you see just exactly how hard the hammer can drop. And then from there, that's when it actually starts like, you know what? There's more to this. We need to we need to really stand up for ourselves. And you see how that actually begins to play out. And I am a pretty tough dude, I like to think. And I'm not going to lie, by, I want to say, with about 15 minutes left to spare in this film, when you get to just exactly how hard the, um, I mean, you, you saw that uh, this terrible president's government, uh, or at least his military arm, or paramilitary arm, I mean, they were legit planned for keeps, and I'm sitting there trying not to, you know, break down like a little bitch, Um I was like crushed watching these people who truly cared uh, for their country and for their camaraderie of their people and the movement and what their government was doing that was wrong and how how much they were committed and what they were truly willing to go through in the cold, in the winter, with no real food supplies at one point or another, with no real medical backup. And not for lack of trying. Uh, and yet, how much they stood. And how everybody, old, young, student, rich, poor, literally the people who truly cared, came together to make this thing work. Um, it's just mind-boggling. And, and it made me, it made me wish that, that here in America, uh, people cared that much and I was and uh because it's kind of sad that I think to a very large degree we don't um and I and I think that that that's and it just and it just hurt I mean Jesus Christ I'm getting upset about just thinking about it it's that kind of movie folks I'm sorry I think this movie deserves to win so fucking bad this movie deserves to win. Um, I give this one five stars, hands down. Best documentary. Um, please see this movie. Uh, bring us home, Tim. Not quite five for me. 4.75 out of five. Yeah, this 
this documentary is definitely a a, a must see. It is both upsetting, enthralling, and superbly entertaining in some way. I mean, there are moments where you forget you're watching a documentary because of how unreal this situation is. It's 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 mind-boggling. It, it's a, just looking back on it or, or or remembering some of the imagery some of the imagery from the film from the documentary. It's just absolutely mind-boggling. People don't understand what a true revolution is. This is a true revolution. You're not going to find this bullshit in... What's the protest from 2011? The... Oh, the... Uh, from whatever, in New York. The, the anti-fiscal movement, yeah. Yeah, where you oh. had the college students doing the sit-in, the Central Park sit-in, or I forget what it is. Yeah, you know, in some way it's important, but that's no fucking revolution. This is a revolution. Look at what these people have been put through. You think our government is is an oppressive government? Watch this yeah, movie, was, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was the Occupy movement. O- yeah, Occupy Wall Street. There you go. Yeah. yeah. At least here we have a form of democracy. People can say whatever they want about it. But you cannot compare this to the scale of all this bullshit in Ukraine. And people are too heavy-handed in saying, especially nowadays, we need a revolution. This country needs to make a stand. We need a revolution, just like our forefathers, the Boston Tea Party, and all this bullshit. You can't compare life now. You cannot compare government now to stuff, uh, to, to you know, the, the American Revolution. You can't, it, it's bullshit. We have it pretty well with our current government. I think we're okay. I think... Through the efforts of diplomacy and democracy, we could still at least attempt to strive for goodness and better equality in life. This was not the case in Ukraine. There was no democracy. There was no sit down and let's listen to the people. Not at all. They. This was the only thing they were able to do. And it's riveting. I mean, the end product, it's, you, you have to watch this movie. Like with uh, Cartel Land, with the advent of relatively inexpensive but high-quality consumer cameras, this footage is absolutely stunning. And it really made for a truly unique viewing experience. Like I said earlier, it felt like you were watching a movie, a Hollywood movie, just the scale of it, the scope of it. It's amazing. I couldn't comprehend being a part of a revolution or being a part of something as culturally significant as this. The only negative thing I have to say, which is why I give it a 4.75 out of 5, is that I just felt like the back end of the film's, of the documentary's final act, felt way too polished and a little too, like, on the scale of Les Miserables, <laughs> this, that scale of emoting kind of overdoing it with the emoting a little bit. You know, you cue the choral strings and the grandiose orchestra music, and it's very, you know, it just felt a little too much, like, Les Mis-ish. Uh, is it fitting? Oh, yeah, it totally is. It was just a little too much of it there at the end. But still, 4.75 out of 5. You gotta watch it. Awesome, awesome. All right, so... um that does conclude the movies for this week. Next week, we have got another whopping six-movie 
deal for you. But don't worry, don't worry. We we we're this is it. We're back on track after this week. Uh, let's see here. Next week we've got Mustang, Son of Saul, Thebe, Youth, Embrace of the Serpent, and so that we don't have to do all foreign films, and because this movie's supposed to be pretty badass. Hail Caesar! That's right, folks. Those are all the movies for next week. And I believe, with nothing else left to do, it's time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can, of course, follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. And don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Nina Simone, I get to say this. There's no excuse for the young people not knowing who the heroes and heroines are or were. And it's Tim saying, take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.